Like, you really can go deep into this stuff. But here we are. Um, we're going to review verse 4, and we're going to pick up from there. I, I would say that there's probably a major thread going through chapter 2, and it's this idea of partiality. <laughs> You're going to see over and over and over again that God's not partial. He's the same God to the Jews and the Gentiles. He, he's not a, a, a hypocrite, and that word hypocrisy, it actually means to like be to wear a mask. It was it was what they did in theatrical plays back in the first century. If you didn't know this, a man, <coughs> excuse me, played both the part of the man and the woman often, and he'd put on a mask, take it off, and he'd put back on a mask, and that's what it meant to be a hypocrite. Uh, but Paul wants you to know over and over again that if you show partiality, then you're a hypocrite. But not only that, if God shows partiality, if, if he says one thing and does another thing, he's a hypocrite, and neither one of those are true. So you're going to see that thread go throughout. All right, verse four, here's what it says. Yet, and we reviewed this last time, so I'll go quick. <clears throat> Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy. If you remember, these are the Judaizers. And I told you this, most of the attacks come from within. Uh, that, that might be the saddest reality of the Christian life is um, we are so focused on what culture has to say about Christianity that we forget that culture has no bearing on God's church. <clears throat> If you want God's church to fail, it tends to fail from within. So they come from within. They, were, they slipped in the spy out. Watch this. Here it is. This is the most important part, the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. People hate that. Let me just tell you real quick. People hate the freedom that you have in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> You'll hear this all the time. You should live a certain way. You should do this. You should listen to this kind of music. My goodness, if you go online right now, there's so many de Netflix documentary series on all the church and what they're doing wrong and the scandals. And yeah, there's some of that going on. But let, let me just tell you, there's a million churches out there and there's like six of them doing bad things. Um, I used to have a teacher in a high school that would say, no, no good news is news because it happens all the time. It's only bad news because it doesn't happen that often. In the church, I, I really think the majority of churches are pretty faithful. The majority of things going on are pretty faithful, and we, uh, we, we fight about a lot of dumb stuff, a lot of stuff that are our freedoms that we have in Christ. So, uh, so they might bring us into slavery, which is the point, right? Don't go back into the bondage that you once were in. Now, now here's, what's really, here's what's really cool about what Paul says in verse 5. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. You know, in Greek, that word moment is actually the word hour. Um, but an hour in Greek was the lowest amount of time possible. You can almost hear it said like this. We didn't even entertain these jokers for a millisecond. That's what Paul is saying. Like, uh, could you imagine what would happen in the church if you stopped paying attention to all the noise? Like, don't, don't play music by those people, or don't do this, or you can't do that, or did you hear what so-and-so was doing? Paul was saying, we didn't even entertain that for a moment because the moment that you do, you bring yourself back into bondage. The gospel is freedom because Jesus took the law. He fulfilled it for you. He's not trying to bring you back into bondage or conformity to the law. Neither should you. That's the point. Uh, we obey because we're accepted. We don't obey to be accepted. We obey because we are accepted because Jesus has already done everything necessary to save us. Religion is slavery. You, you got to understand that. It is absolutely going back into bondage. So he says, we didn't, we didn't do that for a millisecond. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, now this is fascinating. This is something I told our staff to, uh, the other day as we were walking through this. I, I want you to notice this. And actually, it's Psalm 67 is what we went over. It's, <clears throat> it's one of the greatest benedictions in the Bible. If you've ever gone to a traditional church, um, you hear it all the time. May the Lord be gracious to you, make his face to shine upon you and bless you. Everybody stops there. But do you know what he says next? So that, so that the nations might know you. So the nations might be glad, have joy in you. You see this here? We didn't, we didn't entertain that for a millisecond so that the gospel might be reserved, preserved for you. There's a selflessness there. There's a sense in which your submission to the gospel, your freedom in Christ, you're not entertaining the noise actually paves the way for other people's faith too. You know, there's, there's a sense in which the gospel's at stake, not just for you, but for the people around you. You, you realize you got to hold the gospel tight, even when it's not popular. 
Uh, but you got to let go of all the other stuff. You got to let go of all the other stuff. Culture is going to tell you uh, to reinterpret your understanding of different things. But listen, that's a distraction. The greatest threat to the church is the disunity from within. I truly believe that. It's fighting over stupid stuff. So let me just tell you a couple of things that the gospel is not. The gospel is not politics. It's not. Those are important things. Like, here, here's the categories that I put this in, okay? As a Christian, I have convictions, and I should play a part in civil political matters. Do I have convictions as a Christian of who should be the president? Do I have an opinion? Yes. Absolutely. As an individual Christian, as a church, we should not entertain those things. Because the reality is, is you can be a Christian Republican and a Christian Democrat, a Christian conservative and a Christian liberal. You can be both of those things. Both of those things have good parts. Both of them have really bad parts. But neither one of them with the gospel. And a lot of churches get caught up in this gospel politics. Um, now, here's another one. Good things that become gospel that are not. Race. How many of you know the church that's all about racial unity, but that becomes their pillar? It's not the gospel. It's important, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is not liberalism. The gospel is not attractionalism. The gospel is the gospel. Those things, although important, don't make the main thing. You got to make Jesus the main thing. And that's what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, hey, look, they're coming in. They're trying to infiltrate. They're trying to bring you back into these things. (laughs) Idols tend to be good things that you make ultimate things. And they're trying to drag you back into those things. Verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. I love that. And here it is, God shows no partiality. That's a quote directly from Deuteronomy 10, if you want to put things in the margin. It's God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel, I love that. That's a, that's a wording of stewardship. You've been entrusted with this thing. You know, again, I told our staff this this week. Um, the, the contrary to popular belief, God really does care about what you do with the giftings he gives you. Go read the Gospels. Every single parable is about God, Jesus entrusting something to you and holding you to an account to what he entrusted to you. I gave you one talent, what'd you do with it? I gave you 10 talents, what'd you do with it? Like, it matters. What you do with it matters. Do you remember who Jesus called the wicked servant? The guy who did nothing with the stuff that he gave him. He, he buried it because he didn't want to lose it. No, he's entrusted you with something. So when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel, there's a stewardship there to the uncircumcised, which is simply the Gentiles. Just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, so that's the Jews. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Who worked through Peter? Jesus. He worked through Paul too. That's really important. Paul's qualifications to be an apostle, if you didn't know this, an apostle was one who spoke scripture authoritatively because they had spent time directly with Jesus. Paul had already laid out for you that he spent time directly with Jesus. Remember, he went to Arabia, he, he, he went off for years, spent time with Jesus, learned from him for three years, just like he did the disciples. So the reason why Paul could write scripture is because he was an apostle. When Paul tells you he's an apostle and he worked and got his calling or his, his entrusted stewardship from Jesus, he's telling you, I have the authority to speak. And again, God shows no partiality. The same God who worked through the Jews is the same God who's working through the Gentiles. It's not that some people get Jesus while others are excluded. This was the mystery of the gospel. Paul would tell you this over and over and over again. This is Romans 9 through 11. The mystery of the gospel is that God worked through, here, here's a big word, redemptive historical, our uh, redemptive history in order to put his plan of salvation so that all people, regardless of their background, could have the gospel. Did you know this is, this is really offensive to people, especially to religious people? It's offensive to religious people because religious people operate on their own works. 
So whenever they operate on their own works, you tell them that it's not based off your works. Well, you pretty much destroy their own religion. See, these people had to keep the law diligently, and now they're learning that the law won't save them. It, it, it's crushing whenever you realize for the first time that your good works are not that good. I heard Tim Keller in a sermon the other day say, the qualifications for making your works good is that you believe that they're not good. If you believe your works are good, they're never going to be good. If you believe your works are not good, that's how they become good because you don't rely on them. And God had entrusted this calling to Paul. And he didn't want them to lay the burden of the law back on the Jews because it nullifies what Jesus has done. Here's what I would tell you guys is if you add anything to what Jesus has done, you take away everything that Jesus has done. See, this is super important. The same God who called Peter is the same God who called Paul. And they had to recognize this because they got the, their authority was derived from their calling. And if Jesus had called Paul, just like he called Peter, <clears throat> then, then he has the authority to preach the same gospel. Verse 9. Again, I told you I'm going to try to go quickly through some of this because we're going to have to camp out a little later at the back end of chapter 2 for some, some pretty deep theology. And when James and Cephas, that's, that's Peter's Aramaic name, and John, so James, Peter, and John, if you, if you know this, those were the three apostles that were probably closest to Jesus. So if you didn't think Jesus played favorites, he kind of did. He had 12, okay? 11 if you discount Judas. But within that, there was an inner circle, Peter, James, and John, that he spent intimate time with. So these three who seemed to be the pillars, right? They, they were the foundational, perceived the grace that had been given to me. So basically, like this is what Paul's telling everybody else. Hey, Galatians, you want to go back to the three guys that spent the most intimate time with Jesus? Well, they seem to perceive that the same grace was given to me. Here's, there's wisdom here. There, there's wisdom. They, they had discerned that Paul was the real deal and he was from God. See, a lot of people will tell you that they're called to do a lot of things. Let me just tell you this. There's wisdom in having, number one, multiple people affirm your calling, but also the church affirm your calling. You, you know what number one red flag that I hear? I hear it all the time. Hey, I think God had called me to go do this. That's great. Who told you that that was a good idea? Well, my mentor out in California. Well, who'd you talk to in the church? Uh, nobody. What about your small group? I haven't told them yet. But what's the point of giving yourself to community if you never give yourself to the community? I, I, I'm kind of convinced that we seek out people who are going to tell us just what we want to hear. No, that's not what Paul is doing. Paul actually went to the pillars, the people who had authority to shut it down. And I believe with all my heart that if they would have shut it down, Paul would have Paul submitted to that authority. But it, because, it was, because it was from God, it wasn't going to happen. You see, if you really believe that the Spirit is calling you to something, you have nothing to be afraid of because it's going to be affirmed because God works through people to do that, especially his church. Paul was submitting himself to these leaders. Again, this is the Apostle Paul who spent years with Jesus, and he's still humble enough to go to his leaders and submit himself. He didn't volunteer them what he was going to do, which is, tends to be what happens to me. Most, again, I just, most of my conversations, by the time it gets told to me, you've already made up your mind. So I feel like you're volunteering me something. And Paul's like, no, I want to do this on the front end. Uh, I'm bringing my calling to them. I've explained what's been entrusted to me, and I want to see if they affirm it. This is a, a great example of what, what church should look like. You see, when you think about church membership, um, I often say this, church membership is not like your YMCA membership. It's not a status you obtain and never use. It's a commitment you live out. Just like this ring makes me no more married than if I take it off, it's a symbol of a commitment. Church membership is the same way. The membership of a church is simply you actively submitting and giving yourselves to one another. And if you don't do that, well, there's a spiritual reality to that. But if you don't do that, there's no point in ever even being a member. You're just, you're just putting on a ring. Just like if I put on the ring, but I never commit to my wife, I'm no more married than if I didn't wear the ring. Uh, Paul is showing you a great example of what it should look like, guys. God has called you to submit yourselves to one another. Um, and as you submit yourselves to one another, God does something beautiful. He, he elevates your calling that he's already entrusted to you, and, and he tends to help you grow as you give yourselves to one another. That's what Paul was doing here. I gave myself to Peter, James, and John, 
and they perceived the grace that had already been given to me. They gave, if you will, the right hand of fellowship. Now, contrary to popular belief, the left hand is better, but, you know, um, we'll go with the right hand. They gave the right hand of fellowship. I'm kidding. You know I'm left-handed. I don't know if you knew that or not. Uh, nobody laughs around here, so. That's true. That's true. That was funny, you see? I have something I can learn there. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. If you remember this, Barnabas kind of um, validated Paul that we should go to the Gentiles and they should go to the circumcised. Now the gospel is spreading. I love that. See, the reality is they, they gave them, if you will, affirmation. It was a friendly way of recognizing that Paul and Barnabas were all in, that they're, they're on the same team. They agreed with their calling. They blessed them to go. And, and I love this. In Acts chapter 13, it tells you that they perceived that God had set them apart, so they prayed for them and they let them go. Yo, that's easier said than done. Because these were like the superstars of the church. It's a lot easier to hold those people in, but that's not how the gospel spread. Why, why does all this matter? Well, because Paul was being accused of being a rogue warrior. And that's what these Gentiles are doing. He's just gone out on his own. He's not doing what the church wants him to do. He's teaching a different gospel. Like the dude just went and planted a church because he didn't like the one he came from. You, you know, you've heard that story before, right? The church planter that just, he was, he was so disgruntled at the last place. I can do this better, so I'm just going to do it somewhere else. That's not what Paul was doing. Paul was telling them, I didn't do that. I actually went back to Jerusalem. I went back to these guys. I submitted myself to these guys, the pillars of the church, and they agreed and they blessed me to do it. Verse 10. Here's the caveat. Only they asked me to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Can I tell you something? The poor are at the heart of the gospel. I think we often forget this because we live in a capitalistic Western Southern society that tells us um, not, not to think of the poor. It, it seems like social justice. Anybody ever heard that buzzword? I, I just want you to know God was the creator of social justice. As much as we hate that, go read the book of Deuteronomy. He's constantly telling his people to sacrifice for the poor to not glean the, edge of the edges of their field. It's what made them different. As the entire world had a worldview that didn't care about the people around them, that, that told them that it was, they, they were there because of the, the mistakes that they made or that they weren't good enough or they didn't work hard enough, God had a different ethic. And he told his people to have a different ethic too. To, be, to, to care for the vulnerable, those that didn't have. And it didn't actually matter if they deserved it. Actually, every, every so often, every seven years, he told them to free these people from their debts, even though they might have deserved to be indebted there. And I love that that's what, that's what the apostles tell them to do. Hey, go, go take the gospel to the Gentiles, to a world that did not have an ethic for the poor. And he says, just don't forget them. That's such a good reminder See, sometimes our freedom in the gospel makes us think that we don't have to serve, but the reality is that's at the heart of the gospel. The gospel changes who you are. Um, I, I, what's the quote? I sent, I sent this to um, our staff just a second ago. I, I, I love this quote by D.L. Moody. The measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but by how many men he serves. What if that was our ethic? See, there's a, there's a deeper theological meaning, though. In the Old Testament, the poor were those who were completely dependent on God for their care. They completely dependent. They didn't have a welfare system. They needed the church to do it. Here's the point. In Romans 15, Paul would make the same connection to the poor as the spiritually dependent on God. And you see, Jesus called them this poor in the spirit in the, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Those, those who intentionally empty themselves of independence, become poor in spirit, which means that they depend on God. They depend on God to provide for them. You know, I was asked by a few of you recently um, why suffering matters. And I think sometimes suffering has a way of making you poor in spirit, which makes it a gift. I, I know we don't like it, and, and it's really difficult, but sometimes it makes you, it draws you back into dependence on God in a way that nothing else does. Sometimes it's his gift. The apostles are telling Paul that they had to balance something between, watch this, 
Discipleship and evangelism. See, the poor were probably, check this out, this is really important, were probably the Jewish background believers. Hey, here's what they're really telling Paul. Hey, you're going to go to the Gentiles. The Gentiles come from a Roman, Greek background. They're Hellenistic. They're probably upper class. They're the Milton people. As they become Christians, tell them not to forget about their brothers in Christ who are the Jews. You see, there's an ethic going on here. You actually can go back to um, the first... um, um, uh, uh, diaconate. Uh, di- uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you have, come on. I- I'm saying it in Greek, but I don't know the, what's the diaconate? Deacons. Deacons. The first deacons in Acts chapter 7, right? It was the Greek-speaking Hellenists that were serving the, the poor widows, uh, and, and they called them out to do it. And you see the same, same thing here. Paul, Paul, as you take the gospel of the nations, they, they need to care for one another, is what they're saying. We're all brothers in Christ. If we're going to give you the right hand of fellowship to show you that God shows no partiality, make sure they show no partiality back to us. We're all, we're all one in Christ. We're all one big family, right? I, I, there's something really important here. There's a gospel balance that needs to be striked between making room for those who don't believe and caring deeply for those whom God has entrusted the gospel to. It's biblical, Their one request was that as you take the gospel out, don't forget those who are already in. (laughs) See, let me me tell you the dangers. As a church goes to try to be attractional, they can can run the risk of stopping discipling their people, and all they care about is, is out there. That's one danger. The other end of the danger is the church can only care about those who are inside and never care about those who are outside. God's people have to balance both. And, and, and the danger for all of us is when we make room for other people, we, we, we kind of feel neglected. So we, we push against that. That's what, that's what the Jews were kind of doing. They're, they're this internal huddle. And God's saying, no, it's not just for you. It's for all people. And then as, as Paul goes, goes out to all people, they're like, hey, but just don't forget about us. Discipleship and evangelism should go hand in hand. Caring for one another and 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 taking the gospel out should go hand in hand. Don't forget one another. I, I, that's, I think that there's something absolutely amazing here that he's saying. Don't forget that. Don't forget that that's the function of the church. We care for the most vulnerable. We care for one another. We care for our neighbors. We care for those who are in, and we care for those who are not. We don't show partiality. It doesn't really matter if you're the wealthiest person who lives off of Freemanville Road or if you're one of the migrant workers that lives right up the street. You hear what I'm saying again? Let me go back to my first, my first illustration. As a Christian, you might care about immigration status politically. As a church, you do not you care about people. I don't care what your status is or who you are. I don't care where you come from. I don't care if you're rich or you're poor. I don't care if you... Um, are a felon, or you've never committed a crime. God is a God of all people. That's the point. All people. No matter your skin color, no matter your background, no matter who you are, the gospel is for all people. And the church has to remember that. Take the gospel, he says. Go to the ends of the earth. Go to Rome. But when you're sitting inside of those cathedrals, when you're sitting inside of the, the pantheon, don't forget about the poor. You're going to be invited to have steak dinners right at the castle. Don't forget about the poor. Don't forget about your brothers in Christ who are being persecuted, who are suffering. Like, care about all people. Partiality. Verse 11. But when Peter, or Cephas, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. That's a bold move, by the way. Peter is the pillar of the church. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles, which he had the freedom in Christ to do. But when they came, they drew back and they separated themselves, fearing the circumcision party, which would have been the Judaizers. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically, see the partiality, along with him. By the way, Peter's decision, so even Barnabas, 
was led astray by his hypocrisy. Sometimes you don't realize the ripple effects of your decisions and how they have an impact on the people around you. And when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all publicly, gossips when you do it behind people's back, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So sticking with our, our, our timeline we've continued to go through, amazing things were happening in Antioch. A new race was being formed. And Paul, he, he was showing you they're neither Jews nor Gentiles. If, you know, some of you guys grew up in church, do you know what happened in Antioch? What happened? Anybody, anybody know? It's, it's the very first time in the history of the world that people were called Christians. A new race was being formed. Do you know what they're called beforehand? It's just simply the way. So they're given this name Christians in Antioch. This new thing is happening. But this was really, really hard for Jewish background believers like Peter. Like it wasn't easy for them. And again, I think you have to have some understanding here to assimilate into this new culture. Uh, it, it was hard because they're, they're giving up everything that they'd ever believed in. Y'all, cultural assimilation is really hard, but it is biblical. Sometimes the, the more mature people in Christ need to be willing to sacrifice even things that they have that are rightfully their freedoms in Christ so that they can make room for the, if you will, the weaker people, the weaker brothers and sisters in Christ, the more, the less mature, in order for them to come up and to grow into maturity. And Paul was upset because Peter and Barnabas were falling back into the same trap that they had fought so hard to tear down. Y'all, that's what we do too. Don't, don't, don't walk back into the life that Jesus died to save you from. So here's what was most likely going on here. Peter, when he went to visit Antioch after his conversion of, of Cornelius, and he saw God's vision, right? The, the pig in a blanket comes down, animals of every kind. <coughs> he ate with them. It made sense. Right? He's, he's now, I mean, my goodness, can you imagine the very first time that he, he tasted a rib? Or it's a big old slab of bacon. Peter's like, what the heck have we been missing out on our whole life? Right? He's just stuffing the bacon in his mouth. And then James shows up, and he's like throwing it away. And <laughs> Y'all, this was hard for them. It was really hard. When the Jews from Jerusalem come and, and they come under James, Peter's most likely, like, he, he wants to respect them, and with all good intentions, he doesn't, he's trapped. He doesn't know what to do. But the consequences was that the Gentiles, they, they felt like they were second-class citizens. And let me just tell you, when you exclude people from your worship based on things that are not biblical, that's what you unintentionally do to them too. The Gentiles felt like, man, what are we doing? Like, what are we supposed to do? Like, if we don't, are we not as religious as you? Do we not fit in? Are we, are we not a part of the in crowd? And again, let me just tell you, be careful. We do the same thing. We do it in more subtle ways, but... When people don't fit into our affinities, when they don't, they don't dress like us or act like us or, or they, don't, they don't think like us, we, we tend to exclude them from our in crowd. And you can see this, you form little huddles of people. Um, if, you've ever, if you've ever walked into a church and everybody's kind of turned inwardly and there might be a million people, but you're kind of moving through the zigzags and you sit alone and nobody pays attention to you, you kind of feel the same way. Peter was bringing them back into the same bondage that the gospel had freed them from. You know, this section right here, by the way, is the turning point of the entire book. Uh, this is the end of Paul talking about himself. And he's about to turn the message to the theological reasoning. So I, I've told you this before. Paul writes in these things called indicatives and imperatives. So he's now going to bridge the gap telling you why all of this matters. What you got to understand is that it's courageous to do the right thing. I promise you for Paul, this had to be really difficult. This is the guy, but the guy was wrong. And he took a lot of courage and a lot of love to do the right thing. And he did the right thing. 
So, we're at the turning point of the book now. And I think this is the point. It really didn't matter. And it really doesn't matter who's preaching the gospel. Listen to me. It doesn't matter if it's Peter, James, an angel. He said that in chapter 1. Paul, if it's not the gospel according to Jesus, it's wrong. Your status does not give you the authority to say whatever you want. My authority to, to speak here at City Church is derivative from this word. I, I've said this before. We, we preach the authority of God's word without apology. I don't talk about my authority. I have no authority. Uh, the, the, the Greek word for a preacher is, is actually more accurately a herald. In, in Hebrew, it's quillet. It's the, it's the herald. It's, it's the one who unrolls the scroll and says, thus says the Lord. Your job is not to say anything that you think about anything. Your job is to unroll the scroll and tell what God says. And what, what, why this is the turning point of the book is that Peter had a huge platform, and Paul's like, I don't really care about your platform. I don't care that you had the largest platform in the entire world. Jesus called you to preach the gospel. Remember the confession, Peter? Who do you say that I am? You remember this? It's Matthew 16. You're the Christ, the living God. What does Peter tell him? Upon this rock, I'll build my church. Now, big debate. Is the rock there, Peter? Peter, Petra, meaning rock. Is it the person of Christ? Like who's going to be, or the person of Peter who's going to become you know, the Pope of the Catholic Church, or is the rock the confession? You know what the answer is? Yes. It's actually a little bit of both. Um, the, the rock was the confession of faith that he's building his church off of, and Peter was going to be the pillar of the church that was going to begin that movement. And here's what Paul's telling you. <laughs> Paul's telling you it doesn't really matter. That it's, it doesn't really matter who you are, Peter. It doesn't really matter. It's the gospel that matters. Peter, you might be the mantle but even if you preach a gospel contrary to the gospel of Christ, it's not the right gospel. And that's the point. Your life and your theology have to match. Who you are and what you say have to match. You can preach the gospel with your words, but if you live in works righteousness, that gospel with your lives is not the gospel. You got to understand that. Peter, you're not doing what you say you're doing. By the way, real quickly, let's just quick drive-by on conflict resolution. Instead of talking about someone, talk to someone. There's, conflicts get, uh, get resolved whenever you talk to people's face. This is what Paul did to Peter. They handled the conflict and they did it well. All right. So, with that, I need to pause and, and, and give you a quick theology lesson, because all this is going to, it's all going to help make sense of where we're going, okay? About biblical history and how God works in the world. Have you ever heard the word diaspora? Diaspora was the, the Jews who lived throughout the world that weren't um, in particular places because of persecution. They were spread out. Well, if you go all the way back uh, to the Old Testament, the minor prophets, meaning like the books of the Bible you probably don't read, like Obadiah and um, Nahum and Habakkuk are uh, Habakkuk. H Habakkuk um, is really frustrated with God. It seems like nothing is going right in his day. And, and, and it seems like God <clears throat> is not blessing them and they're suffering unjustly. And Habakkuk, he, he comes to God in his frustrations and, and, he, and he asks God, like, God, why are you doing this? Like the Babylonian conquest, our people are suffering, everything's going wrong. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why is the nation of Israel split? Like why did the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin just have to go down here? Why after 586 BC did the Babylonians come in and conquer us? <laughs> well, you know what God tells them? If I even told you, if I even told you what I was doing, you wouldn't be able to understand you know what God was doing? He was spreading people throughout the entire world. 400 years before Christ, he's spreading his people throughout the entire world so that when Acts chapter 1 happens, the day of Pentecost happens, and they all come back to Jerusalem, they get the Holy Spirit. What do they do? They go back out into the diaspora. 
The greatest church planting movement in the history of the world started hundreds of years beforehand. Again, you ask, like, why does God let suffering happen? Well, sometimes, sometimes he's got a plan that you wouldn't even be able to understand if he told you. So you got to get this, right? During the Maccabean revolt, the Jews, they, they settled all over the world and because they, they had nowhere else to go. And because they settled all over the known world, well, they were all over the place, and that's when the gospel movement happened. And this happens really for two reasons. You need to know that God has been moving throughout human history since the very beginning. Like, you can't suppose just because you don't see God moving that he's not. He is. He's been moving since the very beginning. And because the Jews had scattered, like, it was super important that they, that they adhered to all these strict Jewish regulations so they would send these convoys out, and, and they would tell them all the time, like, keep doing what you're doing. The, the, the men that, that represented James were probably the convoy coming to, to represent the Jewish church in Jerusalem to figure out what's going on. So James the bishop um, would, would have been in, Jew, uh, in Jerusalem, and, and he's going, he's checking on in Antioch. Well, how did those Jews get to Antioch? How did they get to all these regions? The diaspora that happened hundreds of years before that. And as that's happening, these Jewish Christians would have been interacting with these Gentile Christians, and they had to understand that God shows no partiality, that he's the same God that he's been working the entire time. See, they knew that they had to accept this, but they had to work it out. And sometimes we got to do the same thing. Paul's point is that Jesus, Jesus came to bring an entirely new way of life for all of us. An entirely new way of life for the Jews and an entirely new way of life for the Gentiles. That's why Paul would tell you, you're neither Jew nor Gentile anymore. You're all one in Christ. You're a new people. And as a new people, you need to live differently. So Paul would tell him, you're not in step with the gospel. But if, if, if you didn't know this, that word in step, it's actually the Greek word we get the word orthopedics from. Here's what he's telling them. Peter, you're not walking rightly with Jesus. That's really a bold claim. Like, hey, when you treat people with partiality, you're not walking rightly with Jesus. There's something orthopedically wrong. You're not walking straight with Christ is actually the, the, the real straight definition of what he's saying. You're, you're walking like a hypocrite. You're wearing a mask. This is the most important book our important verse in this book, maybe, is that God shows no partiality and neither should you. That Jesus has made you an entirely new person. So your old life, you leave behind. And you become an entirely new person and you need to treat people that way too. See, if you don't get that, you're gonna have a hard time getting the gospel. He says, verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person, here, here's, okay, here's what we're going to get really deep in. It's not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Thomas Oden said justification is not the summit, but the ground of the Christian life, not the end, but the beginning of the journey of the evangelical faith. Justification might be the most important single word in the Bible. See, justification, uh, it, it's something like your resume and all other religions in the world says that you take your resume, you present it to God, and that's how you get justified. Christianity is the only religion in the world that says God gives you his resume and it's perfect. And that's where your justification comes from. It, it's a legal term that that literally means like when the gavel was hit, your legal payment has been paid. You know, C.S. Lewis has a great article. Um, if you ever read, it's not very popular, but it's called God in the Dock. Um, apparently in Britain, the dock is like the, the place that you sit whenever you're on trial. And basically what he's saying is like, we put God on trial. But the reality is that Jesus himself was put on trial so that you don't have to. All right, there, there, again, going into the deep end, let me just tell you this. There's two major themes going on here. And they're probably the two major themes of theology in the Bible. One of them is justification by faith, if you write things down. And the other one is union with Christ. 
Both of those two themes, I'm about to save you like a hundred grand on seminary, is the whole of Scripture, is justification by faith and union with Christ. These are Paul's two most favorite themes in the Bible. He works them out, particularly in the book of Romans in here. Here's what justification by faith is. Paul says no one is justified by works of the law, but through, that's a key word, but through faith in Christ. See, the only thing that makes you justified before God is your faith that comes through Christ's works on the cross, not yours. Again, I told you it's this legal term that you're found innocent, but you're found innocent because your penalty has already been paid. Justification (coughs) is that your record is now perfect in God. Now, you're not perfect, but your record is perfect, which means that for all of human history, all of eternity, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your filth or shame. He sees Christ's perfect righteousness in your place. Here's why that matters. Justification isn't just what you are saved from. It's what you're saved to. See, oftentimes in the Christian life, we we cheapen grace because we think about just what we're saved from. You're not, you're not just saved from punishment because you're justified. You're actually saved to something. You're, you're a part of a family now. Because you're justified, you are now all perfect in Christ, and you have perfect righteousness in him, and now you have a relationship with your creator. It's the gateway. Justification is the gateway into relationship. If you actually go back to the book of Genesis, that's the whole point of the Bible, is that God created you to enjoy fellowship with you. So his justification is the bridge that, that separated you because of the law. Now you are justified or you are found righteous or right in God's eyes because of what Jesus has done for you. So because of Christ, you are counted. It's an accounting term, okay? You're counted righteous. God sees your bank account. Everything that Jesus has has been given to you. Your status before God is righteous. I don't know what your status is from before yourself, but the way God sees you is righteous. Paul would say it this way in Romans 3. It's a little deeper. Uh, Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith, there's that word again, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction or partiality, right? Same thing. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, meaning you can't earn this. If you actually look at the book of Romans, Romans 1 is all about uh, how all of us have this thing called um, common grace, which makes us all accountable. Romans 2 is how all the Jews have fallen. Romans 3 is about how all people have fallen. Okay, and then he says, all have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You notice that Paul says that God's righteousness was made manifest or revealed apart from the law. It was revealed apart from the law. He's showing you that it's through the law that you are accountable, but you are made just not by the law, but through Christ. See, what's fascinating here is that that Paul says that the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, if you will, is showing you that it's all pointing to a better way. It's pointing to Christ. See, to be justified is to be made righteous. Uh, imagine that you're in court. Imagine that you're in court and, and you, uh, you, you really did something wrong. I don't know what you did, you're, but you're, you're found guilty. You murdered somebody, whatever. And you're found guilty. You're not innocent. You're found guilty. A jury of your peers finds you guilty, and then the judge steps off of, the, off of his little throne, takes off his garment, walks down, sits in your place, and then gets handcuffed and walked away. And he took your punishment upon himself. He absorbed the cost. You are guilty, but he absorbed the cost and went to prison in your place. At that moment, you were declared guilty, but you are justified at the exact same time because your penalty has been paid. That's exactly how the gospel works, except that judge has sinned that he has to atone for himself. Jesus, the perfect one, was able to do it for you. So that's what Paul means whenever he says you're justified. Jesus didn't just declare that you are right or that you are good. No, he took and he absorbed your punishment. The, the word there is propitiation. And it's where we say Jesus is in our place. He stepped off of his throne. He took off his outer garment. He walked down 
and put on the same exact flesh that you have on, and he lived the same exact life that you live in order to pay the penalty that you deserved. This is what he means by being saved by Christ. See, in the Bible, in the Bible, there are multiple different uses of this word salvation. And, and it's really kind of hard to translate into, into English. But l- let me give you an example of this, um, because we do the same thing in English. Did you know that in, in, in the dictionary, the word run, R-U-N, has 650 different usages? You can run for president. You can be dumb like I am and go run when it's 95 degrees outside, right? You can, you can run a, a business. Well, salvation works the same way. Okay, you get the point? Salvation really has three different meanings, and you can't mix them up if you're going to get what the Bible says. First is justification. Justification is that moment that you believed in Christ. The moment you believed in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that you are a new creation. In that very moment, cosmically, you are made right. By the way, this is what the Bible says that you can only die one death. You've died your death the moment you came to Christ. Did you realize that? The, the death that separates you from God for all of eternity, in that very moment, you've died that death. Well, the second one, the one that we often get hung up on, the one that we mix terms with is sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming like Jesus. See, in that process of transformation, you, you tend to mix that up. And let, let me give you an example. In Philippians chapter 2, Uh, Paul actually says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not talking about works righteousness. He's actually using that second usage of the word, your sanctification. Um, That's what he means by that. Okay, what what he's saying there is that there should be some disciplining in yourself to become more like Christ as Christ puts his spirit inside of you. James would say that you should fan into flame the spirit of God that you already have within you. See, sanctification, though, the problem is it's not a linear line. I, I talked about this in the sermon on Sunday, Romans 7. I do what I don't want to do, and I don't want to do what I do. It's this constant tug between this body of flesh that you wear that is always going to be sinful, but then this, this spirit of God that lives inside of you. You have peaks and valleys, right? Anybody been there? Right? And in those valleys, you tend to question your salvation. Don't do that. Don't do that. Because the idea is, If you are walking with Jesus and you've confessed, just keep going and keep walking. The third usage of the word is glorification. It's the moment that you die, you become perfect in Christ. The work of salvation is all three parts. It's your justification, it's your sanctification, and it's your glorification. Paul says that salvation, in this sense, starts with your justification. So that's that's one term. And again, I'm only skimming the surface. We don't have a ton of time. You should go do some work there. But justification, its twin brother, is union with Christ. Both of those things are necessary in order for salvation to happen. You're not just justified in Christ. You're united to Christ. And this is the other central theme of the Bible that we don't talk about a whole lot. See, every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing is tied to your union with Christ. As you unite yourself to him, as you become like him, as you have the spirit inside of you, as God sees you, he doesn't see your filth, he sees your union with Christ. The entire point of justification is that Jesus died in your place so that he could gift you with his union with him. And it's in your union, or here's the words, here's the way Paul would say it, it's in your being in Christ. You literally being attached to Christ, that word in Christ, by the way, is used over 200 times in the New Testament. It is so significant and important. It's it's an identity language. Your identity is that you are identified with Christ. You're a son or a daughter of Jesus. You receive his name. Here's how he says it in verse 20. This is exactly what Paul is talking about. I have been crucified with Christ. So when Jesus died on the cross, so did you if you're united to him, in that very moment. See, this is why justification works. Because it's not that Jesus died on the cross, it's that you died with him. So that your penalty has been absorbed in him. What does that mean? I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but now Christ lives in me. I'm united to him. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. That's the fuel 
by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You get that, right? If the law can save you, or if anything else in this world can save you, then you've died, then Christ's death is unimportant. The dumbest bumper sticker on the planet is coexist. You know how offensive that is to God? Do you know how offensive it is to God to say that all religions go to heaven? Number one, you put yourself in a position that you say that you are ultimately God because you know better than God. Number two, you put yourself at odds with every other religion in the world because every religion on that bumper sticker disagrees with that statement. Just so you know. It's not just Christians. Muslims disagree with that. Hindus disagree with that. Buddhists, I don't know what Buddhists believe. They believe everything. Um, they, they all disagree internally with that statement. But that statement in and of itself robs Jesus of the cross. If there were any other way to cry, or any other way for your righteousness, even your good works, then Jesus' death was unnecessary. So I tell people all the time, even in, if you take reductio ad absurdum, even at its logical conclusion, if you come to God, it's a form of works. Every bit of the gospel is that Jesus came to you. He opened your heart. He made himself united to you. He died in your place. He gives you life. He gives you breath. It's all God. Why is that important? Because if he does everything necessary to save you, then he's the only one that can take away your salvation. And guess what? He promises he never will. John 6, I know my sheep, my sheep hear my voice, and I will never drive them away. All those who belong to me, I will keep. See, verse 17, but if in our endeavors to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners in Christ, I'm sorry, but if, I read that terribly, but if in our endeavors to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I build what had been torn down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If I can give you the, the BSV, the Billy Standard Version, because I think the ESV is kind of hard to understand, here's what he's saying. Paul's saying, Jesus isn't the problem. You are. He's not the problem. You are. You were always a sinner. And when you go back to the law for your justification, you become a sinner again. And you're judged under your own pretense of the law. You break your union with Christ. Here's, here's what he's saying. God has united himself to you, and every time you go back to the law, you push yourself away to go back to your old self, and you're walking back into slavery, into your own justification. I heard a powerful example of this not long ago, and I, I, it, was called, it was a sermon called One More Night with the Frogs. It, it, it goes back to um, Moses and the Ten Commandments, and, um, and Pharaoh, he's gotten to the end of himself, and the frogs are everywhere. You go back, frogs are everywhere. And he comes up to Moses, and, and he begs Moses, Moses, Will you tell God to get rid of the frogs? Tell God to get rid of, like they're everywhere. And Moses tells him, okay, when do you want me to do it? It's fascinating. You know what Pharaoh says? Tomorrow. And in the sermon, I thought it was powerful because here's what he says, is he says, how often, how often do we want God's grace tomorrow? Just one more night with my sin. One more night with the pornography. One more night with my self-justification. One more night with my pleasures of this world and my independence. God, I want you. Please do something. But not tonight. It just seems like that's our life, isn't it? One more night with the frogs. God, I, you know, Pharaoh's probably thinking, I can still do this. I can work out my righteousness one more night. God, come tomorrow if I can't do it tonight. See, the human condition is that we're always trying to run back into slavery. But Jesus says, you don't have to do that. I've completely justify you. And if you would unite yourself to me, you unite yourself to me, you will get all of the rewards that come with being with me. We try to rebuild and we try to re resurrect what Jesus has torn down. And when we do that, we prove to be transgressors, not Jesus. That's Paul's point. See, Paul would actually tell you in the book of Romans that the law was necessary because it made you aware of your sins. 
which means that you're no longer without excuse. So you can either try to be your own justification or you can receive his justification and unite yourself to him. By sinners, Paul means something like they, they became like the Gentiles. They, they missed the point, right? They, they walked away from their union with Christ. Their union is not in their good works. That's not where the justification is. Their union is that they're an entirely new family found with God. Here, here it is. For through the law, I died to the law, verse 19, so that I might live to God. See, through the law, why through the law? Well, because Jesus, you have an entirely new relationship with the law. He didn't disregard the law, but because of Jesus, you have an entirely new relationship. Now you can live to God. See, when you come to faith, it's not that the rules go away. They just don't earn your approval anymore. Like, they don't earn God's approval anymore. They have a totally different reality. I got it. They have a totally different reality. Remember, 735. Um, alarm clock. Rules now become freedom. And, and I think that's true of any relationship, isn't it? We don't, we don't have rules for our kids. I, I, I heard this, again, I heard this in a sermon recently. Now, the, the only type of parents that are really awful are the parents who are highly abusive and highly disconnected. God is neither. Both of those, Matt, we need rules in order to have freedom. You're saved from some things, but you're also saved to some things. Notice the language, I, I, through the law, I died to the law. Through it, to it. He, what, he, what it literally means is that Jesus, because of Jesus, he and you have been released by your union with Christ. You've been released from the authority of the law. That's how justification works. Right? What, there's double jeopardy. You can't be punished twice for the crime that you committed. You have been punished. You have to understand this. This is why cheap grace, Diedrich Bonhoeffer talked about, is so stupid. You have been punished for your sins. You've been punished in Christ because you've been united to him, which means that your punishment has been paid. So how did Paul die to the law by going through the law? Well, through Jesus. His union with Christ is what did it. And because he's united to Christ, because he's identification with Christ, he's now been gifted Christ's resume, his perfect righteousness through the law. So when God sees you, you know what he sees? That you've kept the law perfectly. You have hit the mark. Remember sin, Greek word hamartia, which literally means to miss the mark? You have not missed the mark according to God. Because when God sees you, he sees Christ if you're united to him. There's a sense in which Paul is saying that that you're no longer bound or you're no longer enslaved to the law and you can now live to God. Here's what he's saying. Through your union with Christ, if you are in Christ, you can actually say no to sin. You, you can actually overcome it. That's how salvation works. That's how it works. See, just one more time, the only way that you can live to God is if you identify with Christ, is if you unite to him, which means that you had to die to him. This is what he talks about. If anybody comes after me, let him deny himself or disconnect from himself, carry his cross, unite with me, and then he'll live. That's union with Christ. You unite with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's what verse 20 is all about. I think we'll have to stop here. If I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what union with Christ is. Guys, when you put your faith in Jesus, you literally die spiritually with him and you're born again with him and you're resurrected in that very moment. You have experienced your spiritual resurrection. And now the life that I live by flesh, I, I, now the life I live in the flesh, I live by the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. If you underline words, underline the word live. Four times, four times and it's always in the present tense. He's telling you, you can live now. You don't live the day you die. You live now. You've died with Christ, and now you can begin to live your Christian life now. You gotta, you gotta understand what he's saying. Jesus' plan for your life is that you would come alive. I think there's so many Christians that are walking around like zombies, and God's like, come alive. You can live now. James 1 says that you need to fan into flame this thing that's already inside of you. You can live now, and you can have joy now. That word flesh, again, I'm going to just end on this thought. Sarks, it means body. 
Theologically, you're not just a body and a spirit. You're one united thing. And by faith, you can now, you can now love the person you are because you're united with Christ forever. All right. I don't want to get yelled at, so we're going to stop. I want to keep going, though, but we're going to stop. Father, thanks for this word. Lord, I know there's a lot to get through. Uh, this is the, the deep end of Christianity. But God, I'm grateful that we're united to you. We're justified by you. Lord, I pray that that would sink in in all of our lives, that we can now live because you lived. God, we don't have to wait until we die. We don't pray a prayer to go to heaven. We unite ourselves to you. We come alive in you. Lord, help us. Help us to live out that reality. To be known by you is one of the most amazing things. You're not partial. Neither should we be. You love us. You loved us till the end. And Lord, you want us to come alive. So in our body, in our flesh, in our spirit, help us to live to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.